0: Chapter number one, Part two of Widdishins This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. Recording by Kevin Green Widdishins by Oliver Onions Chapter one Part two Even more curious that the commonplace dripping of an ordinary water-tap should have tallied so closely with an actually existing air was another result it had, namely that it awakened or seemed to awaken, in Oleron, an abnormal sensitiveness to other noises of the old house. It has been remarked that silence obtains its fullest and most impressive quality when it is broken by some minute sound, and, truth to tell, the place was never still. Perhaps the mildness of the spring air operated on its torpid old timbers. Perhaps Oleron's fires caused it to stretch its old anatomy, and certainly a whole world of insect life bored and burrowed in its balks and joists. At any rate, Oleron had only to sit quietly in his chair, and wait for a minute or two in order to become aware of such a change in the auditory scale as comes upon a man who, conceiving the midsummer Woods to be motionless and still, all at once finds his ear sharpened to the crepitation of a myriad insects. And he smiled to think of a man's arbitrary distinction between that which has life and that which has not. Here, quite apart from such recognisable sounds as the scampering of mice, the falling of plaster behind his panelling, and the popping of purses or coffins from his fire, was a whole house talking to him, had he but known its language. Beams settled with a tired sigh into their old mortises. Creatures ticked in the walls, joints cracked, boards complained, with no palpable stirring of the air window-sashes changed their positions with a soft knock in their frames, and whether the place had life in this sense or not it had at all events a winsome personality. It needed but an hour of musing for Oleron to conceive the idea that, as his own body stood in friendly relation to his soul so by an extension and an attenuation his habitation might fantastically be supposed to stand in some relation to himself. He even amused himself with a far-fetched fancy that he might so identify himself with the place that some future tenant taking possession might regard it as in a sense haunted. It would be rather a joke if he, a perfectly harmless author, with nothing on his mind worse than a novel he had discovered he must begin again, should turn out to be laying the foundation of a future ghost. In proportion, however, as he felt this growing attachment to the fabric of his abode, Elsie Bengoff, from being merely unattracted, began to show a dislike of the place that was more and more marked, and she did not scruple to speak of her aversion. "'It doesn't belong to today at all, and for you especially it's bad.' she said with decision. You're only too ready to let go your hold on actual things and to slip into apathy. You ought to be in a place with concrete floors and a patent gas-meter and a tradesman's lift, and it would do you all the good in the world if you had a job that made you scramble and rub elbows with your fellow men. Now, if I could get you a job for, say, two or three days a week, one that would allow you heaps of time for your proper work, would you take it? Somehow Oleron resented a little being diagnosed like this. He thanked Miss Bengoff, but without a smile. "'Thank you, but I don't think so. After all, each of us has his own life to live,' he could not refrain from adding. "'His own life to live? How long is it since you were out, Paul?' "'About two hours.' "'I don't mean to buy stamps or to post a letter. How long is it since you had anything like a stretch?' "'Oh, some little time, perhaps. I don't know.' "'Since I was here last?' "'I haven't been out much.' "'And has Romilly progressed much better for your being cooped up?' "'I think she has. I'm laying the foundations of her. I shall begin the actual writing presently.' It seemed as if Miss Bengoff had forgotten their tussle about the first Romilly. She frowned, turned half away, and then quickly turned again. "'Ah, so you've still got that ridiculous idea in your head?' "'If you mean,' said Oleron slowly, "'that I've discarded the old Romilly "'and am at work on a new one, "'you're right. "'I have still got that idea in my head.' "'Something uncordial in his tone struck her, "'but she was a fighter. "'His own absurd sensitiveness hardened her. "'She gave a pshaw of impatience. "'Where is the old one?' she demanded abruptly. "'Why?' asked Oleron. "'I want to see it. "'I want to show some of it to you.' I want, if you're not wool-gathering entirely, to bring you back to your senses. This time it was he who turned his back, but when he turned round again he spoke more gently. It's no good, Elsie. I'm responsible for the way I go, and you must allow me to go it, even if it should seem wrong to you. Believe me, I am giving thought to it. The manuscript—I was on the point of burning it, but I didn't. It's in that window-seat, if you must see it. Miss Bengoff crossed quickly to the window-seat and lifted the lid. Suddenly she gave a little exclamation, and put the back of her hand to her mouth. She spoke over her shoulder. "'You ought to knock those nails in, Paul,' she said. He strode to her side. "'What, what is it, what's the matter?' he asked. "'I did knock them in, or, or rather pulled them out.' "'You left enough to scratch with,' she replied, showing her hand. From the upper wrist to the knuckle of the little finger, a welling red wound showed. "'Good gracious!' Oleron ejaculated. "'Here, come to the bathroom and bathe it quickly.' He hurried her to the bathroom, turned on warm water, and bathed and cleansed the bad gash. Then, still holding the hand, he turned cold water on it, uttering broken phrases of astonishment and concern. "'Good Lord! How did that happen? As far as I knew, I'd—' "'Is this water too cold? Does that hurt? I can't imagine how on earth—' "'There, that'll do.' "'No. One moment longer. I can bear it,' she murmured, her eyes closed." Presently he led her back to the sitting-room and bound the hand in one of his handkerchiefs, but his face did not lose its expression of perplexity. He had spent half a day in opening and making serviceable the three window-boxes, and he could not conceive how he had come to leave an inch and a half of a rusty nail standing in the wood. He himself had opened the lids of each of them a dozen times, and had not noticed any nail, but there it was. "'It shall come out now at all events,' he muttered, as he went for a pair of pincers, and he made no mistake about it that time. Elsie Bengough had sunk into a chair, and her face was rather white, but in her hand was the manuscript of Romilly. She had not finished with Romilly yet. Presently she returned to the charge. "'Oh, Paul, it will be the greatest mistake you ever, ever made if you do not publish this,' she said. He hung his head, genuinely distressed. He couldn't get that incident of the nail out of his head, and Romilly occupied a second place in his thoughts for the moment. But still she insisted, and when presently he spoke, It was almost as if he asked her pardon for something. "'What can I say, Elsie? I can only hope that when you see the new version you'll see how right I am, and if, in spite of all, you don't like her, well,' he made a hopeless gesture, "'don't you see that I must be guided by my own lights?' She was silent. "'Come, Elsie,' he said gently. "'We've got along well so far. Don't let us split on this.' The last words had hardly passed his lips before he regretted them. She had been nursing her injured hand with her eyes once more closed, but her lips and lids quivered simultaneously. Her voice shook as she spoke. "'I can't help saying it, Paul, but you are so greatly changed.' I shall Elsie,' he murmured soothingly. "'You've had a shock. Rest for a while. How could I change?' "'I don't know, but you are. You've not been yourself ever since you came here. I wish you'd never seen the place.' It's stopped your work, it's making you into a person I hardly know, and it's made me horribly anxious about you. Oh, how my hand is beginning to throb! Poor child! he murmured. Will you let me take you to a doctor, and have it properly dressed? No, I shall be all right presently. I'll keep it raised. She put her elbow on the back of the chair, and the bandaged hand rested lightly on his shoulder. At that touch an entirely new anxiety stirred suddenly within him. Hundreds of times previously, on their jaunts and excursions, she had slipped her hand within his arm as she might have slipped it into the arm of a brother, and he had accepted the little affectionate gesture, as a brother might have accepted it. But now, for the first time, there rushed into his mind a hundred startling questions. Her eyes were still closed, and her head had fallen pathetically back, and there was a lost and ineffable smile on her parted lips. The truth broke in upon him. Good God! God! and he had never divined it. And stranger than all was that, now that he did see that she was lost in love of him, there came to him not sorrow and humility and abasement, but something else that he struggled in vain against, something entirely strange and new, that, had he analysed it, he would have found to be petulance and irritation and resentment and ungentleness. The sudden selfish prompting mastered him before he was aware. He all but gave it words what was she doing there at all? Why was she not getting on with her own work? Why was she here interfering with his? Who had given her this guardianship over him that lately she had put forward so assertively? Changed? It was she, not himself, who had changed. But by the time she had opened her eyes again, he had overcome his resentment sufficiently to speak gently, albeit with reserve. "'I wish you would let me take you to a doctor,' she rose. "'No, thank you, Paul,' she said. "'I will go now. If I need a dressing, I'll get one. Take the other hand, please. Good-bye.' He did not attempt to detain her. He walked with her to the foot of the stairs. Halfway along the narrow alley she turned. "'It would be a long way to come if you happened not to be in,' she said. "'I'll send you a postcard next time.' At the gate she turned again. "'Leave here, Paul,' she said with a mournful look. "'Everything's wrong with this house.' Then she was gone. Oleron returned to his room. He crossed straight to the window-box. He opened the lid and stood long looking at it. Then he closed it again and turned away. That's rather frightening, he muttered. It's simply not possible that I should not have removed that nail. Oleron knew very well what Elsie had meant when she had said that her next visit would be preceded by a postcard. She, too, had realized that at last, at last he knew, knew and didn't want her it gave him a miserable, pitiful pang, therefore, when she came again within a week, knocking at the door unannounced. She spoke from the landing. She did not intend to stay, she said, and he had to press her before she would so much as enter. Her excuse for calling was that she had heard of an inquiry for short stories that he might be wise to follow up. He thanked her. Then, her business over, she seemed anxious to get away again. Oleron did not seek to detain her. Even he saw through the pretext of the stories and he accompanied her down the stairs. But Elsie Bengough had no luck whatever in that house. A second accident befell her. Halfway down the staircase there was the sharp sound of splintering wood, and she checked a loud cry. Oleron knew the woodwork to be old, but he himself had ascended and descended frequently enough without mishap. Elsie had put her foot through one of the stairs. He sprang to her side in alarm. "'Oh, I say, my poor girl!' she laughed hysterically. "'It's my weight. I know I'm getting fat.' keep still let me clear these splinters away he muttered between his teeth she continued to laugh and sob that it was her weight she was getting fat he thrust downwards at like the broken boards the extrication was no easy matter and her torn boot showed him how badly of the foot and ankle within it must be abraded good god good god he muttered over and over again i shall be too heavy for anything soon she sobbed and laughed but she refused to reascend and to examine her hurt "'No, let me go quickly. Let me go quickly,' she repeated. "'But it's a frightful gash. No, not so bad. Let me get away quickly. I—I'm not wanted.' At her words that she was not wanted, his head dropped as if she had given him a buffet. Elsie, he choked brokenly and shocked. But she too made a quick gesture, as if she put something violently aside. "'Oh, Paul, not that. Not you. Of course, I do mean that too, in a sense.' Oh, you know what I mean. But if the other can't be, spare me this now, I wouldn't have come, but— Oh, I did. I did try to keep away. It was intolerable, heart-breaking. But what could he do? What could he say? He did not love her. Let me go. I'm not wanted. Let me take away what's left of me. Dear Elsie, you're very dear to me. But again she made the gesture, as of putting something violently aside. No. Not that, not anything less. Don't offer me anything less. Leave me a little pride. Let me get my hat and coat. Let me take you to a doctor,' he muttered. But she refused. She refused even the support of his arm. She gave another unsteady laugh. "'I'm sorry I broke your stairs, Paul. You will go and see about the short stories, won't you?' He groaned. "'Then if you won't see a doctor, will you go across the square and let Mrs. Barrett look at you? Look, there's Barrett passing now.' The long-nosed barret was looking curiously down the alley, but as Oleron was about to call him he made off without a word. Elsie seemed anxious for nothing so much as to be clear of the place, and finally promised to go straight to a doctor, but insisted on going alone. "'Good-bye,' she said. And Oleron watched her, until she was past the hatchet-like, to let boards, as if he feared that even they might fall upon her and maim her. That night Oleron did not dine. He had far too much on his mind. He walked from room to room of his flat, as if he could have walked away from Elsie Bengoff's haunting cry that still rang in his ears, I'm not wanted, don't offer me anything less, let me take away what's left of me. Oh, if he could only have persuaded himself that he loved her! He walked until twilight fell, then, without lighting candles, he stirred up the fire and flung himself into a chair. Poor, poor Elsie! But even while his art ached for her, it was out of the question, If only he had known, if only he had used common observation! But those walks, those sisterly takings of the arm! What a fool he had been! Well, it was too late now. It was she, not he, who must now act, act by keeping away. He would help her all he could. He himself would not sit in her presence. If she came, he would hurry her out again as fast as he could. Poor, poor Elsie! His room grew dark, the fire burned dead— and he continued to sit, wincing from time to time as a fresh tortured phrase rang again in his ears. Then suddenly, he knew not why, he found himself anxious for her in a new sense, uneasy about her personal safety. A horrible fancy that even then she might be looking over an embankment down into dark water, that she might even now be glancing up at the hook on the door, took him. Women had been known to do those things, Then there would be an inquest, and he himself would be called upon to identify her, and would be asked how she had come by an ill-healed wound on the hand, and a bad abrasion of the ankle. Barrett would say that he had seen her leaving his house. Then he recognized that his thoughts were morbid. By an effort of will he put them aside, and sat for a while listening to the faint creakings and tickings and rappings within his panelling. If only he could have married her! But he couldn't. Her face had risen before him again, as he had seen it on the stairs, drawn with pain and ugly and swollen with tears. Ugly, yes, positively blubbered. If tears were women's weapons as they were said to be, such tears were weapons turned against themselves. Suicide again. Then all at once he found himself attentively considering her two accidents. Extraordinary they had been, both of them. He could not have left that old nail standing in the wood why he had fetched tools specially from the kitchen, and he was convinced that the step that had broken beneath her weight had been as sound as the others. It was inexplicable. If these things could happen, anything could happen. There was not a beam nor a jar in the place that might not fall without warning, not a plank that might not crash inwards, not a nail that might not become a dagger. The whole place was full of life even now, As he sat there in the dark he heard its crowds of noises, as if the house had been one great microphone. Only half conscious that he did so, he had been sitting for some time, identifying these noises, attributing to each crack or creak or knock its material cause, but there was one noise, which again not fully conscious of the omission, he had not sought to account for. It had last come some minutes ago, it came again now, a sort of soft sweeping rustle, that seemed to hold an almost inaudibly minute crackling. For half a minute or so it had Oleron's attention, then his heavy thoughts were of Elsie Bengough again. He was nearer to loving her in that moment than he had ever been. He thought how to some men their loved ones were but the dearer for those poor mortal blemishes that tell us we are but sojourners on earth, with a common fate not far distant that makes it hardly worth while to do anything but love for the time remaining. Strangling sobs, Blearing tears, bodies buffeted by sickness, hearts and minds callous and hard with the rubs of the world. How little love there would be, were these things a barrier to love. In that sense he did love Elsie Bengoff. What her happiness had never moved in him, her sorrow almost awoke. Suddenly his meditation went. His ear had once more become conscious of that soft and repeated noise, the long sweep with the almost inaudible crackle in it. Again and again it came with a curious insistence and urgency. It quickened a little, as he became increasingly attentive. It seemed to Oleron that it grew louder. All at once he started bolt upright in his chair, tense and listening. The silky rustle came again. He was trying to attach it to something. The next moment he had leapt to his feet, unnerved and terrified. His chair hung poised for a moment, and then went over, setting the fire-irons clattering as it fell. There was only one noise in the world like that, which had caused him to spring thus to his feet. The next time it came Oleron felt behind him, at the empty air with his hand, and back slowly until he found himself against the wall. "'God in heaven!' the ejaculation broke from Oleron's lips. The sound had ceased. The next moment he had given a high cry. "'What is it? What's there? Who's there?' A sound of scuttling caused his knees to bend under him for a moment, but that he knew was a mouse. That was not something that his stomach turned sick and his mind reeled to entertain.' That other sound, the like of which was not in the world, had now entirely ceased, and again he called. He called, and continued to call, and then another terror, a terror of the sound of his own voice, seized him. He did not dare to call again. His shaking hand went to his pocket for a match, but found none. He thought there might be matches on the mantelpiece. He worked his way to the mantelpiece, round a little recess, without for a moment leaving the wall. Then his hand encountered the mantelpiece, and groped along it. A box of matches fell to the hearth. He could just see them in the firelight, but his hand could not pick them up until he had cornered them inside the fender. Then he rose and struck a light. The room was as usual. He struck a second match. A candle stood on the table. He lighted it, and the flame sank for a moment and then burned up clear. Again he looked round. There was nothing. There was nothing, but there had been something, and might still be something. Formerly Oleron had smiled at the fantastic thought that, by a merging and interplay of identities between himself and his beautiful room, he might be preparing a ghost for the future. It not had occurred to him that there might have been a similar merging and coalescence in the past. Yet with this staggering impossibility he was now face to face. Something did persist in the house. It had a tenant other than himself, and that tenant, whatsoever or whosoever, had appalled Oleron's soul by producing the sound of a woman brushing her hair. Without quite knowing how he came to be there, Oleron found himself striding over the loose board he had temporarily placed on the step broken by Miss Bengoff. He was hatless and descending the stairs. Not until later did there return to him a hazy memory that he had left the candle burning on the table, had opened the door no wider than was necessary to allow the passage of his body, and had sidled out, closing the door softly behind him. At the foot of the stairs another shock awaited him. Something dashed with a flurry up from the disused cellars, and disappeared out of the door. It was only a cat, but Oleron gave a childish sob. He passed out of the gate, and stood for a moment under the toilet boards, plucking foolishly at his lip and looking up at the glimmer of light behind one of his red blinds. Then, still looking over his shoulder, he moved stumblingly up the square. There was a small public-house round the corner. Oleron had never entered it, but he entered it now, and put down a shilling that missed the counter by inches. Bruh, bruh, brand Brandy, he said, and then stooped to look for the shilling. He had the little sawdusted bar to himself. What company there was, carters and labourers, and the small tradesmen of the neighbourhood, was gathered in the farther compartment. Beyond the space where the white haired landlady moved among her taps and bottles. Olron sat down on a hardwood settee with a perforated seat drank half his brandy, and then thinking he might as well drink it as spill it, finished it. Then he fell to wondering which of the men whose voices he heard across the public house would undertake the removal of his effects on the morrow. In the meantime he ordered more brandy. For he did not intend to go back to that room where he had left the candle burning. Oh no! He couldn't have faced even the entry and the staircase with the broken step, certainly not that pith-white fascinating room. He would go back for the present to his old arrangement of workroom and separate sleeping quarters. He would go to his old landlady at once, presently, when he had finished his brandy, and see if she could put him up for the night. His glass was empty now. He rose, had it refilled, and sat down again. And if anybody asked his reason for removing again, oh, he had reason enough, reason enough. Nails that put themselves back into wood again, and gashed people's hands, steps that broke when you trod on them and women who came into a man's place and brushed their hair in the dark, were reasons enough. He was querulous and injured about it all. He had taken the place for himself, not for invisible women to brush their hair in. That lawyer fellow in Lincoln's Inn should be told so, too, before many hours were out. It was outrageous letting people in for agreements like that. A cut-glass partition divided the compartment where Oleron sat from the space where the white-haired landlady moved, but it stopped seven or eight inches above the level of the counter. There was no partition at the farther bar. Presently Oleron, raising his eyes, saw that faces were watching him through the aperture. The faces disappeared when he looked at them. He moved to a corner where he could not be seen from the other bar, but this brought him into line with the white-haired landlady. She knew him by sight, had doubtless seen him passing and repassing, and presently she made a remark on the weather. Oleron did not know what he replied, but it sufficed to call forth the further remark that the winter had been a bad one for influenza, but that the spring weather seemed to be coming at last. Even this slight contact with the commonplace steadied Oleron a little. An idle, nascent wonder whether the landlady brushed her hair every night, and, if so, whether it gave out those little electric cracklings, was shut down with a snap, and Oleron was better." With his next glass of brandy he was all for going back to his flat. Not to go back. Indeed, he would go back. They should very soon see whether he was to be turned out of his place like that. He began to wonder why he was doing the rather unusual thing he was doing at that moment, unusual for him, sitting hatless, drinking brandy in a public house. Suppose he were to tell the white-haired landlady all about it. To tell her that a caller had scratched her hand on a nail, had later had the bad luck to put her foot through a rotten stair, and that he himself, in an old house full of squeaks and creaks and whispers, had heard a minute noise, and had bolted from it in fright. What we should think of him! That he was mad, of course! Psh! The real truth of the matter was that he hadn't been doing enough work to occupy him. He had been dreaming his days away, filling his head with a lot of moonshine about the new Romilly, as if the old one was not good enough, And now he was surprised that the devil should enter an empty head. Yes, he would go back. He would take a walk in the air first. He hadn't walked enough lately. And then he would take himself in hand, settle the hash of that sixteenth chapter of Romilly. Fancy he had actually been fool enough to think of destroying fifteen chapters. And thenceforward he would remember that he had obligations to his fellow men, and work to do in the world. There was the matter in a nutshell. He finished his brandy and went out. He had walked for some time before any other bearing of the matter than that on himself occurred to him. At first the fresh air had increased the heady effect of the brandy he had drunk, but afterwards his mind grew clearer than it had been since morning, and the clearer it grew, the less final did his boastful self-assurances become, and the firmer his conviction that, when all explanations had been made, there remained something that could not be explained. His hysteria of an hour before had passed. He grew steadily calmer, but the disquieting conviction remained. A deep fear took possession of him. It was a fear for Elsie. For something in his place was inimical to her safety. Of themselves her two accidents might not have persuaded him of this, but she herself had said it. I'm not wanted here. And she had declared that there was something wrong with the place. She had seen it before he had, well and good one thing stood out clearly, namely, that if this was so, she must be kept away for quite another reason than that which had so confounded and humiliated Oleron. Luckily, she had expressed her intention of staying away. She must be held to that intention. He must see to it. And he must see to it all the more that he now saw his first impulse, never to set foot in the place again, was absurd. People did not do that kind of thing. With Elsie made secure, He could not with any respect to himself suffer himself to be turned out by a shadow, nor even by a danger, merely because it was a danger. He had to live somewhere, and he would live there. He must return. He mastered the faint chill of fear that came with the decision, and turned in his walk abruptly. Should fear grow on him again, he would perhaps take one more glass of brandy. But by the time he reached the short street that led to the square, he was too late for more brandy. The little public-house was still lighted but closed, and one or two men were standing talking on the curb. Oleron noticed that a sudden silence fell on them as he passed, and he noticed further that the long-nosed Barrett, whom he passed a little lower down, did not return his good night. He turned in at the broken gate, hesitated merely an instant in the alley, and then mounted his stairs again. Only an inch of candle remained in the Sheffield stick, and Oleron did not light another one. "'Deliberately he forced himself to take it up, and to make the tour of his five rooms before retiring. "'It was as he returned from the kitchen across his little hall that he noticed that a letter lay on the floor. "'He carried it into his sitting-room, and glanced at the envelope before opening it. "'It was unstamped, and had been put into the door by hand. "'Its handwriting was clumsy, and it ran from beginning to end without comma or period. "'Oleron read the first line, turned to the signature, and then finished the letter.' It was from the man Barrett, and it informed Oleron that he, Barrett, would be obliged if Mr. Oleron would make other arrangements for the preparing of his breakfast and the cleaning out of his place. The sting lay in the tale, that is to say the postscript. This consisted of a text of scripture. It embodied an allusion that could only be to Elsie Bengoff. A seldom seen frown had cut deeply into Oleron's brow. So that was it. Very well, they would see about that on the morrow, For the rest, this seemed merely another reason why Elsie should keep away. Then his suppressed rage broke out. The foul-mounded lot! The devil himself could not have given a leer at anything that had ever passed between Paul Oleron and Elsie Bengoff, yet this nosing rascal must be prying and talking. Oleron crumpled the paper up, held it in the candle flame, and then ground the ashes under his heel. One useful purpose, however, the letter had served. It had created in Ol'ron a wrathful blaze that effectually banished pale shadows. Nevertheless, one other puzzling circumstance was to close the day. As he undressed, he chanced to glance at his bed. The coverlets bore an impress as if somebody had lain on them. Ol'ron could not remember that he himself had lain down during the day. Offhand, he would have said that certainly he had not. But after all, he could not be positive." His indignation for Elsie, acting possibly with the residue of the brandy in him, excluded all other considerations, and he put out his candle, lay down, and passed immediately into a deep and dreamless sleep, which, in the absence of Mrs. Barrett's morning call, lasted almost once round the clock. To the man who pays heed to that voice within him which warns him that twilight and danger are settling over his soul, terror is apt to appear an absolute thing against which his heart must be safeguarded in a twink unless there is to take place an alteration in the whole range and scale of his nature mercifully he has never far to look for safeguards of the immediate and small and common and momentary things of life of usages and observances and modes and conventions he builds up fortifications against the powers of darkness He is even content that, not terror only, but joy also, should for working purposes be placed in the category of the absolute things, and the last treason he will commit will be that breaking down of terms and limits that strikes not at one man, but at the welfare of the souls of all. In his own person, Oleron began to commit this treason. He began to commit it by admitting the inexplicable and horrible to an increasing familiarity. He did it insensibly, unconsciously, by a neglect of the things that he now regarded it as an impertinence in Elsie Bengoff to have prescribed. Two months before, the words, a haunted house, applied to his lovely, bemusing dwelling, would have chilled his marrow. Now, his scale of sensation becoming depressed, he could ask, haunted by what, and remain unconscious that horror, when it can be proved to be relative, by so much loses its proper quality. He was setting aside the landmarks, mists and confusion had begun to enwrap him. And he was conscious of nothing so much as of a voracious inquisitiveness. He wanted to know. He was resolved to know, nothing but the knowledge would satisfy him, and craftily he cast about for means whereby he might attain it. He might have spared his craft. The matter was the easiest imaginable. As in time past he had known in his writing moments when his thoughts had seemed to rise of themselves and to embody themselves in words not to be altered afterwards, so now the questions he put himself seemed to be answered, even in the moment of their asking. There was exhilaration in the swift, easy process. He had known no such joy in his own power since the days when his writing had been a daily freshness and a delight to him. It was almost as if the course he must pursue was being dictated to him. And the first thing he must do, of course, was to define the problem. He defined it in terms of mathematics. Granted that he had not the place to himself, granted that the old house had inexpressibly caught and engaged his spirit, granted that, by virtue of the common denominator of the place, this unknown co-tenant stood in some relation to himself. What next? Clearly the nature of the other numerator must be ascertained. And how? Ordinarily this would not have seemed simple, but to Oleron it was now pellucidly clear. The key, of course— lay in his half-written novel or rather in both romilies the old and the proposed new one a little while before oleron would have thought himself mad to have embraced such an opinion now he accepted the dizzying hypothesis without a quiver he began to examine the first and second romilies from the moment of his doing so the thing advanced by leaps and bounds swiftly he reviewed the history of the romilly of the fifteen chapters he remembered clearly now that he had found her insufficient on the very first morning on which he had sat down to work in his new place. Other instances of his aversion leapt up to confirm his obscure investigation. There had come the night when he had hardly forborne to throw the whole thing into the fire, and the next morning he had begun the planning of the new Romilly. It had been on that morning that Mrs. Barrett, overhearing him humming a brief phrase that the dripping of a tap the night before had suggested, had informed him that he was singing some air he had never in his life heard before, called the Beckoning Fair One. The Beckoning Fair One! With scarcely a pause in thought, he continued. The first Romilly, having been definitely thrown over, the second had instantly fastened herself upon him, clamouring for birth in his brain. He even fancied, now looking back, that there had been something like passion hate almost in the supplanting and that more than once a stray thought given to his discarded creation had it was astonishing how credible oleron found the almost unthinkable idea had offended the supplanter yet that a malignancy almost homicidal should be extended to his fiction's poor mortal prototype in spite of his inuring to a scale in which the horrible was now a thing to be fingered and turned this way and that, a good God broke from Oleron. This intrusion of the first Romilly's prototype into his thought again was a factor that for the moment brought his inquiry into the nature of his problem to a termination. The mere thought of Elsie was fatal to anything abstract. For another thing, he could not yet think of that letter of Barrett's, nor of a little scene that had followed it without a mounting of colour and a quick contraction of the brow for wisely or not he had had that argument out at once striding across the square on the following morning he had bearded barrett on his own doorstep coming back again a few minutes later he had been strongly of opinion that he had only made matters worse the man had been vagueness itself he had not been to be either challenged or browbeaten into anything more definite than a muttered farrago in which the words certain things "'Mrs. Barrett. "'Respectable house. "'If the cap fits—' "'Proceedings that shall be nameless,' had been constantly repeated. "'Not that I make any charge,' he had concluded. "'Charge!' Oleron had cried. "'I have my ideas of things, as I don't doubt you have yours.' "'Ideas? Mine?' Oleron had cried wrathfully, immediately dropping his voice as heads had appeared at windows of the square. "'Look you here, my man! "'You've an unwholesome mind, which probably you can't help, "'but a tongue which you can help, and shall. "'If there is a breath of this repeated—' "'I'll not be taught to on my own doorstep like this by anybody,' Barrett had blustered. "'You shall, and I'm doing it. "'Don't you forget there's a god above all, who has said—' "'You're a low scandalmonger, and so forth, "'continuing badly what was already badly begun. "'Oleron had returned wrathfully to his own house, and thenceforward—' looking out of his windows had seen barrett's face at odd times lifting blinds or peering round curtains as if he sought to put himself in possession of heaven knew what evidence in case it should be required of him the unfortunate occurrence made certain minor differences in oleron's domestic arrangements barrett's tongue he gathered had already been busy he was looked at askance by the dwellers of the square and he judged it better until he should be able to obtain other help to make his purchases of provisions a little farther afield rather than at the small shops of the immediate neighbourhood for the rest, housekeeping was no new thing to him, and he would resume his old bachelor habits. besides, he was deep in certain rather abstruse investigations in which it was better that he should not be disturbed. He was looking out of his window one midday, rather tired, not very well, and glad that it was not very likely that he would have to stir out of doors when he saw Elsie Bengough crossing the square towards his house. The weather had broken. It was a raw and gusty day, and she had to force her way against the wind that set her ample skirts bellying about her opulent figure, and her veil spinning and streaming behind her. Ulron acted swiftly and instinctively. Seizing his hat he sprang to the door, and descended the stairs at a run. A sort of panic had seized him. She must be prevented from setting foot in the place. As he ran along the alley he was conscious that his eyes went up to the eaves as if something drew them. He did not know that a slate might not accidentally fall. He met her at the gate, and spoke with curious volubleness. This is really too bad, Elsie, just as I am urgently called away. I am afraid it can't be helped, though, and that you will have to think me an inhospitable beast. He poured it out just as it came into his head. She asked if he was going to town. Yes, yes, to town, he replied. I have got to call on, on Chambers. You know Chambers, don't you? "'No, I remember you don't. A big man you once saw me with. I ought to have gone yesterday, and—' This he felt to be a brilliant effort. "'And he's going out of town this afternoon, to Brighton. I had a letter from him this morning.' He took her arm and led her up the square. She had to remind him that his way to town lay in the other direction. "'Of course, how stupid of me,' he said with a little loud laugh. "'I'm so used to going the other way with you. Of course, it's the other way to the bus. Will you come along with me? I'm so awfully sorry it's happened like this.' They took the street to the bus terminus. This time Elsie bore no signs of having gone through interior struggles. If she detected anything unusual in his manner she made no comment, and he, seeing her calm, began to talk less recklessly through silences. By the time they reached the bus terminus, nobody, seeing the pallid-faced man without an overcoat, and the large, ample-skirted girl at his side, would have supposed that one of them was ready to sink on his knees for thankfulness that he had as he believed saved the other from a wildly unthinkable danger they mounted to the top of the bus oleron protesting that he should not miss his overcoat and that he found the day if anything rather oppressively hot they sat down on a front seat now that this meeting was forced upon him he had something else to say that would make demands upon his tact it had been on his mind for some time and was indeed peculiarly difficult to put. He revolved it for some minutes, and then, remembering the success of his story of a sudden call to town, cut the knot of his difficulty with another lie. "'I'm thinking of going away for a little while, Elsie,' he said. She merely said, "'Oh? Somewhere for a change. I need a change. I think I shall go to-morrow, or the day after. Yes, to-morrow, I think.' "'Yes,' she replied. "'I don't quite know how long I shall be,' he continued. "'I shall have to let you know when I am back.' "'Yes, let me know,' she replied, in an even tone. The tone was for her suspiciously even. He was a little uneasy. "'You don't ask me where I'm going?' he said, with a little cumbrous effort to rally her. She was looking straight before her, past the bus driver. "'I know,' she said. He was startled. "'How? You know?' "'You're not going anywhere,' she replied he found not a word to say it was a minute or so before she continued in the same controlled voice she had employed from the start you're not going anywhere you weren't going out this morning you only came out because i appeared don't behave as if we're strangers paul a flush of pink had mounted to his cheeks he noticed that the wind had given her the pink of early rhubarb still he found nothing to say of course you ought to go away she continued I don't know whether you look at yourself often in the glass, but you are rather noticeable. Several people have turned to look at you this morning, so, of course, you ought to go away, but you won't, and I know why. He shivered, coughed a little, and then broke silence. Then, if you know, there's no use in continuing this discussion, he said curtly. Not for me, perhaps, but there is for you, she replied. Shall I tell you what I know? No, he said in a voice slightly raised. No, she asked, her round eyes earnestly on him no again he was getting out of patience with her again he was conscious of the strain her devotion and fidelity and love plagued him she was only humiliating both herself and him it would have been bad enough had he ever by word or deed given her cause for thus fastening herself on him but there that was the worst of that kind of life for a woman women such as she business woman in and out of offices all the time always whether they realized it or not made comradeship a cover for something else. They accepted the unconventional status, came and went freely as mended, were honestly taken by men at their own valuation, and then it turned out to be the other thing after all, and they went and fell in love. No wonder there was gossip in shops and squares and public houses. In a sense the gossipers were in the right of it, independent yet not efficient, with some of womanhood's graces forgone, and yet with all the woman's hunger and need half sophisticated yet not wise oleron was tired of it all and it was time he told her so i suppose he said tremblingly looking down between his knees i suppose the real trouble is in the life women who earn their own living are obliged to lead he could not tell in what sense she took the lame generality she merely replied i suppose so it can't be helped he continued You do sacrifice a good deal, she agreed, a good deal, then she added after a moment. What, for instance? You may or may not be gradually attaining a new status, but you're in a false position today." It was very likely, she said. She hadn't thought of it much in that light. And, he continued desperately, you're bound to suffer. Your most innocent acts are misunderstood. Motives you never dreamed of are attributed to you, and in the end it comes to... He hesitated a moment, and then took the plunge. To the sidelong look and the leer. She took his meaning with perfect ease. She merely shivered a little as she pronounced the name, Barrett. His silence told her the rest. Anything further that was to be said must come from her. It came as the bus stopped at a stage and fresh passengers mounted the stairs. "'You'd better get down here and go back, Paul,' she said. "'I understand perfectly.' perfectly. It isn't Barrett. You'd be able to deal with Barrett. It's merely convenient for you to say it's Barrett. I know what it is. But you said I wasn't to tell you that. Very well. But before you go, let me tell you why I came up this morning." In a dull tone, he asked her why. Again she looked straight before her as she replied, "'I came to force your hand. Things couldn't go on as they have been going, you know, and now that's all over.' "'All over,' he repeated stupidly. "'All over. "'I want you now to consider yourself, as far as I am concerned, perfectly free. "'I make only one reservation.' He hardly had the spirit to ask her what that was. "'If I merely needed you,' she said, "'please don't give that a thought. "'That's nothing. "'I shan't come near for that. "'But,' she dropped her voice, "'if you're in need of me, Paul, "'I shall know if you are, and you will be, "'then I shall come at no matter what cost.' you understand that he could only groan so that's understood she concluded and I think that's all now go back I should advise you to walk back for your shivering goodbye she gave him a cold hand and he descended he turned on the edge of the curb as the bus started again for the first time in all the years he had known her she parted from him with no smile and no wave of her long arm End of chapter 1, part 2